Romans chapter 12 is our passage uh, this morning. We come back to this wonderful chapter in Romans 12 and into this section in verses 9 through 21, a section I've entitled Love Inside and Out, because Paul introduces this section with a rather blunt statement, unhypocritical love. That's what he says in verse 9. You remember we said last time there's no verb. In fact, the whole section, there are no verbs, no main verb. It's just a series, a bunch of nouns and adjectives and participles and infinitives and all those things, but no, no main verb really saying anything. If there's any verb really to be spoken of, it probably comes to us from verse 2 where Paul's telling us to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind so that we can test or prove or discern what the will of the Lord is. But when we come to verse, when we come to verse 9 and following, Paul is just really kind of spelling out, if you will, what some of the qualities of our life will be when we're doing that. When we're no longer being conformed to the world, when we're being transformed, what does that life look like? It becomes clear as you move through all these short, rapid-fire little phrases that Paul strings together in the remainder of the chapter, you quickly realize what it's all about. It's all about your relationships. It's all about other people. It's all about how you treat them. It's all about how you respond to them. It's all about showing love, love in the good times and in the bad times, love when you're down and out and love when you're on the high, love in all the various situations. And Paul is unfolding for us, I think, this multifaceted, three-dimensional, realistic picture of what love really looks like or what it ought to look like in the lives of believers who are being transformed the way they're supposed to be transformed. And he takes this idea, this unhypocritical love, or as the ESV translates it, let your love be genuine. It's just those those two basic words, unhypocritical love, and he talks about how this manifests itself both internally in our hearts and then externally through our actions, or as we said even last time, internally inside the body of Christ to one another and externally to those who are outside the body of Christ. This is love inside and out, a a full picture, a three-dimensional picture of what love is. And it's challenging, but it's also refreshing as you get past all of the noise and all the fabrication of false love that's all around us in the culture, in the world, and sometimes even in the church under the preaching of the gospel. This takes us into a good, hard look of what God considers to be genuine love, real love, the kind of love that shows a transformed mind. Discerning God's will in all the various areas of life and discerning what unhypocritical love looks like in that. This is what a renewed mind produces, a life that's constantly, you remember from verse 1, reflecting on God's mercies in your life, the mercies of God being the foundation, and then a life that is presenting itself to God as a living sacrifice, a life that's discerning God's will in the many complex situations of life and showing itself in love. Now, I've tried to group all of this a little bit to help us think through the 
the variations in this list. It's a long list, but just try to group these things together so that we can uh, more faithfully apply them, if you will. And so we've We've, we've enumerated 15 of these, 15 which I, I call responses to God's mercy and love in our lives, 15 ways that God's mercy and love demands from us a certain response. And we, we saw, first of all, last week, that God's mercy and love demands, as Paul says, that we be sincere, that we have no unhypocritical love, or that love Let love be genuine, no fake love, no pretend love, no no hypocritical love, he says. That's the first thing. Let this be a, a genuine work in your life, something that's really manifesting itself, not in selfish and self righteous ways, but in humble and genuine ways. Secondly, as we saw last week, it needs to be a discerning love or We need to be discerning, I should say, in response to God's love. Paul adds it in the second half of verse 9. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. This is a call for discernment. Since since sincere love is not indulgent love, not approving of evil in people's lives when evil is contrary to God and destructive to their ultimate joy, true love, genuine love, has to abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Thirdly, a response to God's mercy and love in our lives would demand, as he says in verse 10, that we be family, that we be family. And that just summarizes Paul's point in verse 10 as he brings together a lot of family language, words about brotherly love, other words about a unique kind of love that exists between even parents and children, Paul brings all that terminology together in the Greek language and puts it together, and we translate it here, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. And we talked about how this isn't just the warmth of affection. You have that sometimes, sometimes you don't. This isn't just talking about the warmth of affection that might be there with family, so much as it is talking about the The commitment and devotion that is there, which is the essence of family love. We love one another as family, not just because we always feel the same towards one another. In fact, in the average course of life in the day, your feelings may come and go, but as family, the essence of family is a devotion, a commitment, an endurance to one another. Paul combines that with This call for brotherly love to outdo one another in showing honor as a New American Standard translates to give preference to one another in honor. So we're to honor one another beyond or or ahead of yourself. This is love. This is a love that comprehends God's mercy in your life and then turns around and shows it to others. This proves that you're getting it. This proves that you are presenting yourself as a living sacrifice, that you're being transformed out of the world's mold, and that you're being renewed. You're finally understanding that this is the will of God, holy, acceptable, and good. Now today we move to a new set, another, if you will, twist, if you will, in the, twi- in the variations of, of Paul's a list of this multifaceted love inside and out. 
And we might say that this group of qualities in verses 11 and 12 sort of take on then the the reality of life with discouragement. It appears to be recognizing that in all of these calls uh, for love, genuine love, sincere love, and hypocritical love, that there is a reality that discouragement can sap us from showing that. Paul recognizes that in your Christian life there will be high points, there will be low points, there will be encouraging times, there will be discouraging times, there will be times when you're confident in God's love, there will be times when you doubt it. And perhaps all of these come to Paul's mind because he understands that discouragement can have an impact not only on your love towards others, but even your love towards God. Perhaps he understands how it can drain your energy and cause you to recoil from all that you're supposed to be doing. Perhaps he understands how it can cause you to shrink back for a period of time or maybe for an extensive period of time. So Paul is not just going to give us a few cliches. He's not going to give us just just a, a few throwaway statements about loving one another. He wants to recognize the real world where we live in, where forces are at work against the pursuit of love, against the calling of love. He understands that love, it can't just be limited to the utopian times when everything is going exactly as you planned. Love, genuine love, for it to be the love responding to God's love, it has to also be there during the discouraging times. So he moves in verse 11 and 12 to give us admonitions for that. And we see there, we could add a fourth response to God's mercy and love. His mercy and love demands that we be enthusiastic. Enthusiastic in service. Now, you may not be the first thing that comes to your mind whenever you're thinking about love, but this is a reality. The reality is that in order to really be loving, we have to recognize we have to bring a certain amount of energy sometimes into our service for the Lord. There are lots of words that you could use here, enthusiasm, zeal, intensity, fervency, but the idea is that you're not to let your enthusiasm for service within the body of Christ and to the Lord begin to wane, no matter what the circumstances. Paul says it this way in verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. Three phases, all appearing to be emphasizing this synonymous or synthetic ideas. And he begins, we might say, with the negative part or an inward part. Do not be slothful. The word for slothful is just a word for hesitancy. A word for reluctance. A word for shrinking back. Paul uses it in Acts 20 whenever he says to the Ephesian elders, I didn't shrink back from declaring to you anything in the counsel of God. So sometimes out of cause of of fear, sometimes out of maybe just fatigue, sometimes out of just brokenheartedness, we will shrink back, we will draw back from our spiritual ambitions, we might even say from our spiritual priorities. 
And so the whole phrase here really could be translated, not being hesitant to expend the necessary energy. That's what Paul's saying. He's simply recognizing that there's a natural tendency sometimes because of circumstances in our life to draw back from from everything that we are called to be and to do, to lose steam in our commitment to love God with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our strength, to stop short in our pursuit of holiness, to grow complacent in our worship, to no longer pursue God the way that we once did. It's not always clear when it happens, but we've all seen it before. We've all seen it before. We go from a point in our life of fervently spending time with the Lord, telling Him how He has our whole life, how everything we are is His. We go from looking for opportunities to share our faith. We go from uh, laying our lives before Him, committing everything that we have to Him, understanding the eternal purposes of our calling and His kingdom, we go from that kind of intensity to somewhere in our life where that just becomes words. Now it's just words. Now we're just going through the motions. Now we have drawn back from the intensity. Paul says you can't do that. You can't let that wane. That's not responding to the love of God in appropriate ways. You know, Paul says it. You should go down to chapter 13. I think in a similar way, down in that chapter, he says this in verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as a daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Even that section comes out of verses 8 through 10, where Paul has been discussing the love that we're to have for one another, how loving one another is the fulfillment of the whole law. And immediately after that, he recognizes that we will draw back from this commandment to love because sometimes we'll be lulled to sleep. We'll be drawn in to the temporal concerns of this life. We'll be drawn in to the sensual desires of our heart. We'll be drawn in to petty quarrels, petty fights. We'll be drawn into all that and we'll forget that the end is coming, that salvation is nearer now than when we first believe. And the whole idea is that there ought to be a sense of, of urgency more now than when we first believed. You know, I'm always amazing. I, I like to watch sports and um, I'm always amazed, particularly watching championship games. Almost every championship game, it seems that the second half 
is always more intense than the first half. Do you notice that? I mean, I don't know what happens. I'm sure fatigue sets in. I'm sure there's a little bit of, 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 of a strategy that is sort of solidified and you're trying to figuring out the, the other team. But it's always interesting to me that people tend to score more points in the second half and even more points in the final period and maybe even more points in the last two minutes than they score maybe in the whole game. But I think there's also something... Uh, when it comes to these great athletes realizing that that clock is ticking down, that the minutes now, the time to the end of the game is so much closer now than when they first began, that they got a whole season and they're thinking back to all the conditioning and all the practices and all the shots and all the whatever they did to get ready for that moment. And they've gone through the course of the game and they realize that everything is on the line now. So as you go through this game, what happens? They don't become less intense. They become more intense. They sacrifice their bodies more. They lay themselves out more because they realize that the end is coming. And this is what Paul's saying to you and I. Instead of starting with this massive amount of intensity in your Christian life that was maybe there when you were a teenager or maybe there when you were in college and then you run ahead and you sprint ahead and then all of the cares and concerns of this world begin to wrap around your ankles and begin to tie you down and you get sucked into all that stuff and you lose your intensity. He's saying rather than all of that, you need to realize that salvation, that your, that your end is nearer now than it was when you first believed. And so you ought to be like a star athlete stretching farther, going harder, doing more now than you ever did because you know the clock is ticking. And he's saying this is what we need to do. We need to not be hesitant in our enthusiasm, in our zeal. If we're really going to be oriented around the mercy and around the love of God and around eternity, what we ought to be doing is we ought to be increasingly intensifying in our efforts to serve God and to serve other people. We know, unfortunately, though, that's not the way it goes. We know, unfortunately, that too often we become slothful, downgraded, reluctant, hesitant, As I said, we don't always know why it happens and when it happens. But we probably know why it happens. Because there are too many places in Scripture that tell us why it happens. Paul says it in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, wake from your sleep there as well. But he goes on to use another analogy. He says, and be wise in the present age, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Or the time is evil. Or the age is evil. You can translate it all kinds of ways. Because the time that you live in, the world that you live in, has different values. Values that are not oriented towards eternity. Values that are not oriented towards God. Values that are not oriented towards love and goodness. And you are you are constantly being bombarded with calls to that kind of value system. 
And so he says, what you have to do is you have to redeem that time. Every moment, every day, you have to weigh it in the balance of temporal versus eternal. You need to weigh it out and you need to buy it back. That's what redeem means. You need to buy it back. You know what one of the problems is in doing that though? It's not sold for free. To buy it back actually costs you something. It actually costs you all the dreams. It actually costs you all the goals. It actually costs you all the idols that you've set up in your heart. And so to buy back that time, to maintain that intensity and that zeal in pursuit of the Lord... The reason it has gone away is because you are no longer willing to sacrifice. Because it takes time. And time costs you. It takes effort and effort costs you. It takes your heart and your heart costs you. Your loyalties become too ensnared with this world. And so you lose this intensity. But Paul says, don't let that happen. Don't let that happen. You need to be not slothful in zeal, or as he goes on to say, fervent in spirit. He uses the word for boiling or for, for being on fire. Some translations even have this. Be on fire in your spirit. Don't let indifference dominate you. Jonathan Edwards famously wrote out 70 resolutions that governed his life. He didn't write them all at one time. He started with a core group, and as he went on in his life over time, he would add to them and add to them all the time. And he wrote out this list, and he measured his life by them, maybe reading them every day or often, because you can see he was reflecting on them as he went through the years and decades of his life. These are the commitments he gave to himself that if he ever found himself not living up to them, he would confess and repent. I love number six. The resolution was simply this. Resolved to live with all my might while I live. Or number seven. Resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were my last hour. Resolved, number 50. I will act so as... I think I shall judge would have been best and most prudent when I come into the future world. Number 37. Resolved to inquire every night as I'm going to bed wherein I have been negligent what sin I have committed and wherein I've denied myself. What an amazing discipline. Just to go to bed every night and ask yourself this one question. What have I denied myself today? Or has my whole day just been one long indulgence of myself? Has my whole day just been one continuous stream of self-serving, self-orientation, self-glory, and self-righteousness? Has my whole day been all oriented about putting me out in front, about putting me out in 
in, in honor above others, about serving and feeding my own desires, my own kingdom, what today have I denied for myself? Tremendous commitment. This was a man who was committed to maintaining a fervency in his spirit. And, as Paul says, serving the Lord. That's the outside manifestation. If the inside was, was paying attention to your slothfulness, if the inside is maintaining your fervency, then the outside manifestation of that is serving the Lord. Meaning that you're not serving yourself. Meaning that you're not serving this world. Meaning that you're not serving the evil one. Serve the Lord. Understand that is the purpose for which you were created. Understand that there can be no greater satisfaction in life. No greater joy found on any planet or any corner of the universe except in serving Him. So one of the responses to God's mercy... It'll simply be enthusiasm. It'll be, in, it'll be zeal. It'll be fervency in serving the Lord. Fifth, Paul adds another response to God's love and mercy in our lives. God's love and mercy also demands that we be positive. That we be positive in struggles. I mean, this is a very practical way of serving other people is don't be down. Don't be Always in the pits because of your circumstances. But Paul says in verse 12, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. What a, what a delight it is to be around someone who is always joyful. And I know some of those people. Some of the people who are here. I was with uh, Greg Phillips this past week just talking to him about things going on in his life and and he was telling me all these wonderful things that the Lord's doing. And I know that Greg has some struggles. I know that there's some physical struggles in his life. And all he wants to tell me is how good God has been to him. And I just, you're with a guy like that and you just leave uplifted. Overjoyed because you see that he has the joy of the Lord and the goodness of the Lord on his mind. So Paul's telling us, look, in the midst of struggles, don't lose your joy. Don't lose your positive attitude. Don't lose your hope. Don't lose your patience. Again, there's, there's an obvious grouping here, a synthesis of ideas between hope and patience and prayer in the midst of struggle. Paul understands how all under all the pressures of life, uh, in the midst of all this broken and fallen world and the weakness of our flesh and our bodies and the illness and the disease and everything else that we have to face and we have to go through, how it can drain the life, it can drain the passion, it can even make you so inwardly focused on yourself that you're no longer serving other people. Paul says you can't give in to that. You can't let your joy and your patience and your prayer be drained and depleted. And so he prescribes what we need to do. We need to be always rejoicing. It's a present continuous participle. Continually rejoicing. Always rejoicing. No matter what. It's been a recurring theme really throughout the book of Romans. He talked about it in chapter 5. He talked about it in chapter 8. He talks about it here. He'll come back to it even over in chapter 15 about how we need to be filled with hope, filled with joy because of the Lord. 
He says in verse 13 of Romans 15, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you might abound in hope. Or back in chapter 5, he capped off his whole discussion about God's grace and mercy in the gospel and justification through the death of Jesus Christ, saying, through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Because of Christ's work, you stand firm, immovable in God's work, in his grace, always Uh, abounding, you're standing firm there because of His grace. And because of that, you have joy of anticipation, joy of confidence, joy in the hope of the glory of God. Peter speaks about it in terms of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, saying we've been born again to a living hope because of the resurrection of Christ, because of what we know and we believe and we hold on to when we think about the resurrection of Christ. Because of that, he says, it gives birth in our hearts to a hope, and a hope, he says, for an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you by the power of God. Protected by the power of God guaranteed there by Him. Peter says then in verse 6 of chapter 1, in this you rejoice. Even if now, he says, for a little while you're grieved by various trials. The circumstances don't matter. The outward stuff doesn't matter. The outward trials don't matter. You might... You might be burdened by that stuff, but there's a joy that wells up within you because there's an imperishable, undefiled treasure and inheritance that's waiting for you, he says. So you're born up in this. This is the scripture, folks. The Bible doesn't have a message for the person who goes through life with no trials. The Bible doesn't have a message That you're supposed to somehow glide through in health, wealth, and prosperity. The Bible has a message for people who need to be sanctified. Who need to be prepared. Who need to be brought through trials and tribulations. So that they can develop hope and joy. This kind of takes us then to the sixth response to God's love and mercy in our lives, which is very closely related. God's love and mercy demands that we be patient in trial. That we be patient in trial. That's the second part of verse 12 there. Be patient in tribulation. So he moves from hope to tribulation, just like he did in Romans chapter 5, or just like he did back in chapter 8. He says in Romans 8, In this hope... We have, we have been saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. With endurance. In other words, to have hope is by nef- definition to have the need for patience. Because hope that is seen isn't hope. And so you have to 
go through a period of waiting, a period of being patient, a period of enduring in order to have any concept of hope. It's kind of like C.S. Lewis's Narnia where it's always winter and never Christmas. Well, maybe that's just as bad as if it's always Christmas. I mean, one of the wonderful things about Christmas is what? Anticipation. You know, you're waiting. One of the things that makes it so special is that you're waiting for it. And one day it arrives and you get all the joy of Christmas together. Well, in the same way, hope that you always are experiencing isn't hope. And so in order to have hope, you have to wait. You have to go through. You have to endure. Hope, in other words, we might say it this way, hope cannot really be expressed until you face hopelessness. Hopeless circumstances. It's like a muscle, you know, you have to exercise in the midst of tribulation. Back over in Romans 5, Paul says it this way, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So this patience in trial, this patience in endurance is a necessary corollary to the whole idea of hope. We might find ourselves struggling to find joy in the midst of difficulty. We might find ourselves in a fallout with uh, friends or family or whatever it might be. We might find ourselves hurt by others, and, and through the midst of all that trial, we want to recoil, we want to draw back, we want to shrink back from doing the work of the Lord, from serving the Lord, from being engaged in loving people and being engaged in the body of Christ. Or maybe your trial is outside of the church, maybe it's at work, or maybe it's not even with people, maybe it is just physical, or maybe it's financial, or whatever it is, but no matter what the trial, whatever, no matter what the tribulation is, you have to understand God is sending it into your life for your good. He's building in you the kind of patience, the kind of endurance that builds the kind of Character, which builds a kind of hope. You know, one of the great joys of, of growing older in life is that you just get deepened in your hope, don't you? And when you're young, when you're, you're just looking at life and you really haven't gone through all the disappointments and trials and difficulties, you've never had to fight through all that stuff. You've never had to really place that kind of hope in God. But then, as you go on through life, you begin to experience some of those things and you have to reach deeper and deeper and deeper to cling on to this hope that God has given you. And you, you deepen your character through that so that your hope becomes stronger a greater source of joy, a greater resource driving you into service and faithfulness to the Lord. Suffering produces that. Trials produce that. It builds endurance. It's a natural effect, we might say. You know, you don't endure a 10-yard run, right? You see that? 10 yards, man. Man, I'm glad I made it. You endure a marathon, right? Well, well, Paul's talking about here, you have to build this patience. You have to build this endurance. And it means going through the long slog. If 
you haven't had to show patience, you haven't endured anything, you haven't suffered anything, and your hope is probably still pretty thin. But he builds it. He builds it by sending you through the trial. So Paul says you need to have patience. Rejoice in hope, be patient in trial. And then seven, add to this, be prayerful. The end of verse 12, be constant in prayer. Comes to Paul's mind, no doubt, because he's talking about trials. He's talking about hopelessness. He's talking about all these things when, when you and I might be tempted to doubt whether or not God is listening to us. We become like the psalmist, you know, who says, does God hear? Does God know? Does God see what these, uh, what these circumstances are? Does He know my pain? Does He know my suffering? Does He know what these people are doing to me? We begin to ask those questions and we begin to even be doubtful if it even matters if we keep on praying because maybe God isn't listening. Well, Paul urges you then in the midst of that to be constant, steadfast, continual in your prayer life. Jesus always told parables like this, right? Telling us that men ought always to pray and not to lose heart, Luke 18. He tells about a a woman suffering an injustice. And she went to a judge, and even the judge was unjust. And he, he didn't want to listen to her. He didn't want to heed her pleas. She was facing this injustice, and now she was facing an unjust judge. has to be a frustrating situation. But Jesus said that even though the judge wouldn't listen to her because her cause was just, eventually, simply because he was bothered by the fact that she kept on asking, he hears her. Jesus' point, he says, will not God then give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will He delay long over them? I tell you, He will give them justice speedily. And the point is, God is eager to answer you. You think that God is tired of hearing you? Nothing could be further from the truth. God is eager to hear you. He's eager to answer. He's eager to give you speedily, as soon as possible, the answer to your request. So you're going through the trial, you're you're developing patience, you're developing hope, and then you're lifting up your weeping soul to a sympathetic high priest. And Jesus is promising you, He's assuring you that God hears, He's not going to delay the answer any longer than is necessary, but keep on praying, be steadfast, be constant in prayer, do not lose hope, do not lose heart. One who properly understands the mercies of God would do this. One who's reflecting on the love of God responds in this way. One who really is understanding that it is by the grace of God that you stand firm. That you, although once were an enemy of God, now you have peace with God. One who understands everything Paul has taught in the book of Romans wouldn't easily give up in his prayer life. Wouldn't easily give up in the midst of trial. This is Paul's word to us. 
such a temptation to put on hypocritical love, to put on a mask, to pretend that you love when you really don't love because you're so self-consumed with your own difficulties and your own trials and your own circumstances. You're shrinking back. You can't wait to get away from all this stuff in the church and in other Christians because you want to go and just pursue your own self-indulgent concerns. Paul's telling you can't do that. That's not someone who really understands the love of God. The love of God ought to keep you zealous, fervent, boiling over in service to God and your trials shouldn't hinder that at all. You ought to be in the midst of that continuing to find joy and hope and patience in your trials, lifting up your burdens, lifting up your concerns to the Lord and always finding in Him your sufficiency. Always finding in Him your energy. Always finding in Him the resources necessary to love the way He's called you to love. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Wake up. Salvation is closer now than when you first believed. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for these reminders. We pray then that you would stir up the kind of zeal within us that we once had, that we once tasted. That we would be like those athletes as the clock is winding down, that we would be stretching further and harder in the task that's in front of us, preaching the gospel to our neighbors, sharing day after day with our children the good news of faith in Jesus Christ, not weary in well-doing, not growing slack in our duties and responsibilities. We pray, Father, that you would keep us sacrificial, prayerful, Serving, patient, loving. We can't do this, Lord, without your spirit, without the working of your word, the sanctifying effect through the church, bringing all these things together to your glory and honor. And it's to that end that we pray. Amen.